0: I think, uh, I think first of all, you learn how to handle failure and, and mm-hmm. you have to learn how to handle success. Uh, right. you know, some, some, some can handle both. Some can't handle either one, but I, I think that's where I look back, uh, to my parents and thought that I was so well prepared. You know, if I had a couple bad games, I said, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, I'll find something to do. But, you
1: mm-hmm. know, you have to
0: have that kind of an attitude. And if I had a few good games, like, uh, yeah, you know, Johnny Sane, you know, they keep you humble at that clubhouse. They don't let you get too <laughs> full of yourself. But, you know, I'd have a, I'd have a good game. And, and uh, Johnny Sane was my pitching coach. And uh, there'd be a little gaggle of writers around the locker. And, and they'd leave and he'd come over and he'd say, Boy, you had a good curveball that I did, didn't you? And know? I said, Yes, I did. He said, no guarantee you'll have it four days from now (laughs) so so what he was saying thanks for the encouragement so what he was saying is you better keep working on it you don't just say well now I've got it
1: I'm Todd Harrington, and you're listening to the Grey Matters Podcast. Along with my co host Tony Hoyland, each episode explores a special guest's lifelong passion. There'll be a bit of nostalgia, but mostly it's our guest's personal story of how they discovered their passion and how it evolved over the years. Welcome to the Grey Matters Podcast. Okay, today our guest is Jim Cott. He's a former left-handed Major League Baseball pitcher, played for a variety of teams, Minnesota Twins, Chicago White Sox, Philadelphia Phillies, New York Yankees, and St. Louis Cardinals. His 25-year playing career spans four decades. He was an All-Star for three seasons and a Golden Glove for 16 seasons. He was the American League leader in shutouts in 1962, and in 1982, he won his World Series ring with St. Louis Cardinals. He has 283 career wins. After his pitching career, he became a sportscaster. And for the next 22 years, he called games for New York Yankees, Minnesota Twins. He has a book out called Jim Cott, Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball. And in the summer of 2022, Cott was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Without further ado, Jim Cott. Hello, Jim.
0: Hello, Todd. Hello, Todd.
1: Good to have you on. Okay. Before we get started, you're going to hear a a voice chime in from time to time, probably more than, more than any other episode because he's a baseball fanatic. But he suffers like me. He's a Mets fan. Um, they're doing better this year, I hear. He's a musician, a voiceover artist, and my co-host, Tony Hoyland. Tony, say hi to Jim. Hey, Jim. I'm so excited. I'm in awe. I'm a huge, huge baseball fan. (laughs) He's fantastic. Yeah. So, so we're going to, we like to go back a bit. We all know your, you know, baseball and all that, but, What we do on this show is we kind of try to understand when it started, when the passion started. Like I think about when I was a kid, I don't know about Tony. I think every boy either wanted to be a professional baseball player, a football player, or a fireman. That's kind of what it was when I was a little kid. So um, I'm wondering when you really started to fall in love with baseball. Was it like really early on or a little later?
0: No, it was very early on. In fact, I I mentioned that in my... Uh, induction speech that uh, my dad took me to my first games, uh, June 26, 1946, doubleheader between the Red Sox and the Tigers. Uh, Saw Williams hit two, Greenberg hit two. But the thing that, that really struck me is when we walked up the ramp to find our seats at Briggs Stadium, that's what it was before Tiger Stadium, this dark green cathedral open in front of me. You know, there were no billboards or anything like that. And I had just, I'd never seen grass that green or uniforms that white. Mm. And uh, I think a lot of kids, a lot of players relate to that. And I thought, uh, I looked out at that field and I thought, I'd like to be out there. (laughs) I think, yeah, I think that's really when I reflect on it because I remember it so vividly is that when I really said I want to be a baseball player.
1: That's oh, fantastic. I'm going
0: to the game. No, th-
1: Todd, that happened to me too. I mean, I, except it was RFK Stadium and I think I was like nine years old. My dad took me, I walked out of that, you know, entranceway and saw the green. It was just like, this is unbelievable. It was like a dream. Yeah. And so you pursued your career? Yeah, teaching? yeah. I did real well <laughs> in baseball. <laughs> So I was about twelve, it, it, and I realized that I was I horrible. Mean, <laughs> we can all dream, right? Yeah. We can all dream. Um, and so you started playing because you now knew that you want to be. one. so when did uh, when did you really get the bug for playing? And you were, let me ask you a, a fair question: Were you good from the start, or did well, you kind of have a, a growth?
0: Well, uh, you know, the first organized ball sport I played really was fast pitch softball because I, I was pre little league. Uh, they did. My first organized baseball was American Legion baseball when I was like 15. Uh-huh. But in my little hometown of Zealand, Michigan, we would meet down at the uh, quarter gas station. And OK, we'd count up. We got eight of Let's go to the field, play four on four. And, you know, <laughs> that's that's basically what I did until when I was about 15. But uh, I, I asked my mother after I got my in my career, when I got into my career, uh if my dad ever said anything about me, you know, having some potential, and she said, he mentioned uh in your senior year in high school, uh, he said, I think he has some special talent. But see, I, I mean I was I was winning uh most of my games, but I, I didn't know if that was going to translate into being like a big league pitcher. I mean, this is just for a little high school in a town of 4,000 people. So uh, I was good at the time, but I didn't really get a grasp of what my talent level was till I went off to play professional baseball, particularly the first year in 1957, a summer league. I was a Superior, Nebraska, and I wondered now, how am I going to stack up against the kids from the big city, the New York boys, the California yeah. boys, big city. And I didn't do that well my first year, but I told my dad, I said, I was not awed by the competition. I felt like I could compete with those guys. And that, that really gave me a big boost.
1: Yeah. So wait, but was there, you play at Hope college first. You went from high school to Hope and then when, yeah, I went, I went to
0: Hope college for a year, but you know, it's a small college and, and I did well. I mean, my roommate and I, uh, he came to my induction. I hadn't seen him about 30 years, and, uh, 30, or wow. 40 years. And we talked about he was a right hand pitcher. I was a left hand pitcher. We played six double headers. I pitched six games. He pitched six. So seven inning games. So six times seven is 42. Uh, he said, "Well, you were pretty good because you pitched 42 innings. You gave up one run. <laughs> so, <Jeez>. But, wow. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't think I was like a, a man among boys or anything. I mean, I was. We were winning games, and I thought, well, that's what we're supposed to do.
1: <laughs> yeah, but then how did they find you to go pro? I'm not a. I'm not a scout. But like, how do well, how do you go from hope to?" if it's a little school, how do, how who found you?
0: Well, that that's what's I think so interesting and probably about a lot of professional, at least baseball players in that era before the draft and before the, you know, all the exposure with television. And nowadays kids get scouted on the internet. Uh, yeah. the scout that signed me was going to look at the picture from Kalamazoo college. And, uh, all of a sudden you know he noticed that i was pitching pretty well and he said well i better go back next week and see that kid so the next week i was pitching against alma college and we won that game he said well let's give him one more look so he came back again and we won that game and then he said i'd like to have you come down to chicago with me the washington senators are coming in to play the white Sox," and uh, so that's when i got a tryout and subsequently signed with the, uh, Washington senators in 1957.
1: Wow. So, so, I mean, the journey to becoming pro, it kind of happened, it laid out pretty nicely. It wasn't some uh, hard pushing from your parents or anything like that. It was just kind of, seemed like it flowed pretty well.
0: Uh, my dad, my parents actually were the perfect parents. My dad was the perfect dad for an athlete. Uh, I'll give you a quick story about my mother who saw me pitch one game, game two of the 1965 World Series. That was a good one to see. And uh, when the last out was made, uh, Dick Trzyszewski hit a line drive right back at me. That was the last out of the game. My mother looked at my dad as the fans were jumping up and down, and she said, oh, did they win? Uh, (laughs) You know, she was busy uh, canning peaches, bacon pies, made the wedding dresses for for all the uh, brides in Zeeland, Michigan. So when they would say to my mother, uh, "We heard your son Jim is a pretty good baseball player," <laughs> and she said, "You know, I've heard that."
1: <laughs> she, she
0: said, "You know, I think he's the one that throws the ball so they can hit it." <laughs> <laughs> that is That's beautiful, beautiful. your mother of yeah. a pro baseball player. So, my dad, my dad was an avid fan, and, and here's where his wisdom came forth. I mean, he kept me so humble. For example, I I was a good high school basketball player, not because of my height. I was only 5'10 when I graduated. But uh, uh, one night I, I could dribble and pass and play defense. And I got a lot of, you know, conference awards, things like that. But I wasn't a big scorer, but one night I got way over my skis, scored about twice as many points as normal. And I'm making the two block home, two uh, block walk home, and saying, "Well, I wonder what my dad's going to think about that game I had tonight." And I walk in the door, and he, you know, keeps takes a couple draws in his corn cob pipe and looks up at me and said, uh, "Boy, Carl threw you some nice passes tonight, didn't he?" <laughs> <Well,
1: laughs> <my. laughs> Talking about keeping your home, fantastic. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, so in
0: 1957. If you signed a contract for more than $4,000, you had to occupy a seat, a, a spot on the 40-man roster in the big leagues. And wow. there weren't a lot of players that were, it, it, de- it kind of delayed Sandy Koufax's success as well as my teammate, Harmon Killebrew. And my dad followed that with so many of them that got, you know, 30, 30, $25,000, 30000 which was big money. in 1957 and they never made it. So uh, after Washington offered me the $4,000, Pete Melito, the White Sox scout called and, and said, I think I can get your son 25000 from the White Sox because I think he'll be in the big leagues in two years. Now, my dad made $72 a week in 1957. So you mm-hmm. can begin to do the math when he mm-hmm. said, uh, Pete, thank you. But Jim's gonna sign for four and he's gonna to go to the minor leagues and learn how to play the game at the lowest level and work his way up. So yeah. that decision in itself was a major reason, I think, for me uh you know, being able to climb my way up the ladder.
1: Why? Talk about it. The opposite of parents today. Yeah. Uh, with, oh, uh, I know. <laughs>
0: give me the money first, <laughs> well, right? Yeah. Give me the money first, I, I, exactly.
1: I, 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 Wow. That's amazing. Um, so when you're, you're, down, so you're, you're, you're going along and you're, you realize, whether did you have any doubts? I mean, that you said, what, do I love this or did you just, you were good and you kept going? Did you ever have any doubts that's like, should I keep doing this? Or you always, once you started, you just Oh, kept I,
0: going. I, you yeah. know, I, I loved it. My first, you know, f- your first goal kind of, wow, I'm, I'm going to get to play. We used the term OB, which was called organized baseball. And everybody would say, "Yeah, he's got a chance to play at OB, which was professional baseball." So that was goal number one. And then, you know, when you get there, you say, "Wow, I want to pitch in the big leagues someday." And uh, uh, Jack McKeon, who was at my induction, Jack is ninety-one. He's still scouting for the Nationals. He was, oh my god, a twenty-seven-year-old playing manager for me when I was nineteen in missoula montana class c league cleanup hitter for the boise braves that year was this 23 year old grizzled veteran named bob euchre mm. <laughs> <Yeah. Bob Uker. laughs> so anyway uh i start out the season one and four and i thought wow they're not going to send me back to class d ball they're going to send me home and oh, so man. jack mckee and my manager Came over one day because he knew I was I was uh, feeling a little tension. He said, "Kid, look, you relax. You're going to pitch for me every four days. We only have seven pitchers on our staff. We had a 17-man roster in those days. And lo and behold, come September, I had pitched uh, 240 innings. Uh, I led the league in every category. And what really helped me, uh, in contrast to." All the science that's gone into the game today, uh, which the players are treated like robots, you know. If I got the bases loaded, eighth inning, tight game, Jack might trot out, spit a little tobacco juice on my shoes, and say, "Well, kid, you got into this mess. Figure out a way to get out of it." You know. (laughs) I love it. I didn't. You know. a, A lot of times I didn't, but eventually I learned. You know, you learn how to pitch and how to escape jams. And unfortunately, uh, today's pitchers who are so talented, uh, they never get allowed to do that because they're also pre-programmed.
1: It must have been pretty amazing for a boy from uh, Zeeland, Michigan, to to have this kind of journey. I assume the world was opened up to you, and it was pretty exciting, was it? Did your, your dad or, join you often or or at all, or were you on your own pretty much when you traveled?
0: Well, I, w- I was on my own. Uh, y- you learn to grow up in a hurry, you know, because I grew up yeah. in a small town. But he he would uh, come to Chicago or Detroit, and in the minor leagues he came out to visit me, and uh, uh, my parents did in in Nebraska, Superior, Nebraska. But, uh, you know, the subsequent years uh, – You know, dads in those days were working six days a week. It wasn't like, "Yeah, well, I'll take a take a week off." So, Mm, uh, but you know, you're you're lucky that you're part of a. Unlike say pro golfers who are really on their own, you're part of a of a team, and you bond with you know two or three guys like I my. uh, We had a lot of Cuban players, and they didn't speak uh, English very well. And uh, I bonded with them. My roommate and. uh, in Missoula with Sandy Valdespino, he was a. We were quite the mutton. Jeff, I'm six five. He was about five seven. Uh, <laughs> but we we uh, uh, we rented a room in this lady's house. I think for the grand total of sixteen dollars a week in 1958. Oh, and we really, uh, I mean, those are. If you saw the movie Bull Durham, oh yeah, well, of course that that was Missoula, Montana, right there. They could have just filmed our team for the whole season they'd have the movie <laughs> oh, oh
1: that's great the stories you must have yeah. oh my god and so so in, in those days you're just hopping on a bus and driving oh yeah well
0: way. especially in uh in montana yeah we had this old bus called the iron lung we had <laughs> um, eight bunks in the back so like when we oh, after god. the night game in missoula we would uh we'd meet down at the turf cafe and the bus would leave. We'll say at eleven at night. We wouldn't get into Boise till maybe two or three the next afternoon. You know, you didn't have any any interstates then, and it was uh, pretty dicey sometimes traveling through those mountains, particularly in the early part of the season where you might hit some snow. Uh, but uh, you know, when you're when you're nineteen, you you're just enjoying it. You you know, sure. all you see is yeah. the good. You know? Oh yeah, so, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, it's not like you get very rested in a bus ride. And no, you're, gonna, you're going right on the field when you get but, there. But you know, when time.
0: you're when you're 19, you don't get tired. <laughs> <laughs> Love that.
1: And so, uh, so you you went from uh, the Twins, and then you know, which which you kind of did. You miss that departure when you were with them, or?
0: Yeah, I did. You, you know, I was in their organization 16 years, and uh, I had suffered a couple of. Uh, uh, you know, an arm injury, then a wrist injury in 72, where I slid into second base and uh, and broke my wrist, which which ended, m- might have been my best season in the first half of that season. And uh, mm-hmm. so I was a little slow coming back. And then uh, being 35 years old, and they had some young players, and 35 in those days was considered, you know, kind of on the other side of your career. So the Twins put me on waivers. I remember telling our are, are, are the waiver list for those who don't understand that the team puts you on this list and every team in baseball starting with the worst record has a chance to claim you. And uh, the Chicago White Sox ended up claiming me for the grand total of $20,000. And, uh, and so, you know, I thought about, you know, all the years i would had in Minnesota and I, I would have loved to have stayed there. And I remember telling, Bob Rogers, our bullpen catcher, I said, you know, they think I'm done, but my arm is just beginning to come back. And uh, so I go over to Chicago and I get reunited with Johnny Sane. And uh, the next thing you know, I pitch for another uh, uh, 10 years because, you know, uh, mechanically he made a few changes with my motion. And then I I pitch for uh, maybe the most positive baseball person I'd ever been around. Chuck Tanner was, uh, was our manager and, uh, I kind of resurrected my career.
1: That's fantastic. I remember those Can twins it? teams. That was Harmon Killebrew and I think Tony Oliva and Rod Carew, right?
0: Oh yeah. Well, those you know, when we teams. moved from, uh, when we moved from Washington to the twin cities, we had TC on our cap, <clears throat> excuse me, TC on our cap, Mm-hmm. And that was new to fans around the league. I mean, they thought Minnesota was somewhere out in the hinterlands. Eh? <laughs> they had no idea right. where Minnesota yeah. was. And so they'd always say, well, what's that TC stand for? And I would say 20 Cubans. <laughs> See, we, we we had Pasquale, Ramos, Valdivioso, uh, Versailles won the MVP, Tony Oliva, who went to the Hall of Fame yeah. with me. Papa Joe Cambria scouted cuba for washington and there weren't any rules and regulations and so some of these players because they so wanted to get over and play in the big leagues they were probably paying them three four thousand dollars a year mm-hmm. and so we we had all this cuban talent in the early 60s that all of a sudden came together and we end up winning the pennant in 1965 and a, a lot of the reason was the, the uh, cuban players that mm-hmm. uh, that were part of our organization.
1: But you guys, I mean, you said your your mom saw you at 65. She must have really finally caught on that you're really good. And she went, she didn't go to any other games? Or is that no, it? I
0: mean, I think mothers, you know, parents in those days, uh, they weren't soccer moms. They didn't go hanging <laughs> on the chain link fence hollering. Come on, Johnny, let's. You know, my mom, yeah. I'd walk in, well, how'd you do tonight? Well, you know, we we had good teams, but every now and then, well, we didn't do too well. you did the best you could, did you? Oh, yeah, well, that's great. Maybe, you know, so that's what I mean. I, I, yeah, had, yes. I had perfect parents in that uh, they were not, you know, driving me to practice and watching every move I made. I think my dad, in the background, sensed that I did have some talent. And, you know, he never saw me how to throw – showed me how to throw a pitch. He just came to my games and let me develop.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, listen, who taught you? Is this your coach in high school? So, no, yeah. I, I, I think
0: – you- uh, I never really had a pitching coach till my first spring training in the big league. So, and oh and I think oh that's God. what was so helpful is that you had to figure it out on your own. See, today kids uh, – they don't have the curiosity True. in terms of what do I have to do to get better like uh, I was pitching against Whitey Ford in the early 60s. I was uh, thrilled that my first big league win was in Yankee Stadium in 1960 and Whitey was the opposing pitcher so and, and later on in life we we got to know each other and it was a real thrill for me we I had my picture taken with him 50 years after. Uh, that first game, we we pitched against one another in 1960. But in the early 60s, uh, we're playing the Yankees, and Whitey's the opposing pitcher, and we're in the bullpen. And I can we're about maybe 20 feet apart by a chain-link fence that's separating us. And I can hear and see the spin on his fastball, the way it's moving. And I thought to myself, man, I wonder how he's throwing that pitch. So there was a little break, and it was a day game, and he took his cap off, wiping his brow, and I hustled over to the fence, and I said, Whitey, now, he could have told me to go take a hike. I'm pitching against him that day.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: But I was curious. I said, Whitey, do you mind showing me how you hold your fastball? Well, there was a couple conventional grips and you'll hear it on TV today, he throws a two seamer, a four seamer, mm-hmm. which was across the seams or with the seams. And he showed me this kind of a diagonal grip that he had, uh, because we weren't interested in speed, we were interested in movement, and he got a lot of sinking action on that. So I go back and I grip it the way he showed me, and I tell my catcher, here comes, it was a fastball, but we, that's what we called it, it was a moving fastball. And Man, that thing started sinking down toward the outside corner. Well, that was 1962. And when I played my last game in 1983, I was still gripping my fastball the way Whitey Ford showed me.
1: Oh, my God. Thank you.
0: Man. And then I would I would sit on the porch in the Otis saga, you know, talking, talking pitching and listening to Warren Spahn and Robin Roberts tell those tales. And I would say, I remember... Uh, Sponny, I, he wanted me to call him Sponny. I said, I remember I got a pitching lesson from you in the early 60s. We played an exhibition game against the Braves. And uh, through a coach, I got to meet him. And he says, go down to the bullpen. Taught me how to, you know, train my arm in spring training. Things like that, that we learned on our own, that today, uh, every organization has probably a pitching coach and an assistant pitching coach on every level. And they're filling these young, talented pitchers full of so much information. It's going to make their head explode. Mm -hmm. You know, they they ought to just take the ball and say, here, kid, you were pretty good in high school, weren't you? Yeah. Go out and pitch like you did then." You know, Mm -hmm. it's the same game. It's just you're better and the guys you're playing against are better, so you're going to find out Who's the better of the two? <laughs> wow. And yeah, yeah. everybody has the same scientific information, mm-hmm. and yet they're all, you know, they're all forcing these players to, uh, you know, to pay attention to, as we call them, the propeller heads up in the press box, yeah, the science yeah. scientists that never played, telling the guys that really know how to play how to play. If you follow that. <laughs>
1: So speaking of hitting, um, Jim, did you enjoy hitting?
0: Oh, I did. You know, I, I, I think as a, as a kid, uh, playing all that sandlot ball and, uh, you know, you swung the bat and you played in the field and you pitched and you did everything, is that I think we really uh, trained ourselves to be baseball players that just happened to be pitchers. Mm-hmm. You know, you learned, uh, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing now to see they have to have the DH because the pitcher is clueless when he steps in the batter's box. Yeah.
1: They don't know That's how to run the bases. They don't that. know how
0: to yeah. slide. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, we, we practiced all those things, you know, right. uh, because you wanted to, I hated it when the DH first came about in 1973, because I said, well, if I'm a better hitter than that guy I'm pitching against, <laughs> that gives me a big advantage.
1: Speaking of
0: Wadi Herzog, so that had to have been one of the highlights, obviously, the the Cardinals World Series team. Oh, no question. I mean, I I didn't know these things until my career was over. But uh, we went to the World Series in 65, where uh, I got to hook up against the great Sandy Koufax three times. Wow. (laughs) And then, you know, we, we lost in seven games, but we thought, well, we've got a good team. We're going to be back. And we never did get back. So now I find out that by going to the World Series in 1982, that was the longest period of time anyone has had to wait Mm -hmm. between World Series appearances, 17 years. I found it out by, I was watching the Indians and the Orioles in 1997 when Cal Ripken was with the Orioles. Mm -hmm. And I hear my friend Tim McCarver say, well, if the Orioles get back, to the World Series. Uh, Cal Ripken will get back to the series. It'll be 14 years since he first went in 1983. And then they said, who holds a record for the longest period of time? So I'm sitting at home scratching my head, adding (laughs) up the years. And I said, well, I think I'm the answer to that question. Oh my (laughs) god. That's great. And then when when we win the World Series in 82, Uh, Steve Hurt and the the Hurt brothers, who are the Elias Sports Bureau that have all the statistics on everything, uh, they said, do you know that you are the only professional athlete in any professional sport that had to play 24 full seasons before you got a championship ring? Ray Bork went 22 seasons before he was on a Stanley Cup winner. So wow. a combination of those things are what made me so grateful that I was a part of the 82 Cardinal team. Mm-hmm.
1: What did baseball, what did you learn the most about yourself and about baseball? How did that, I mean, it changed your life. Obviously, you became a professional. But is there something that you found as a as a man as a human that kind of uh, that that was evolved differently by being a pro- professional baseball player. I mean, what did you get from the journey beyond being a pro? Did something
0: well, from I, a, I,
1: obviously physically, but spiritually, emotionally.
0: Yeah, I, I think uh, I think first of all, you learn how to handle failure, and and yeah. you have to learn how to handle success. Uh, right. You know some. Some some can handle both, some can't handle either one. But I, I think that's where I look back uh, to my parents and thought that I was so well prepared. You know, if I had a couple bad games I said, well, you know, if this doesn't work out, I'll find something to do. But you know, you have to have that kind of an attitude and if I had a few good games like uh like you know, Johnny said, you know, they keep you humble in that clubhouse. They don't let you get too <laughs> full of yourself but you know, you I'd have a I'd have a good game and and uh Johnny Sain was my pitching coach, and uh, there would be a little gaggle of writers around the locker, and they'd leave, and he'd come over and he'd say, "Boy, you had a good curveball that I didn't." You? And I said, "Yes, I did." He said, "No guarantee you'll have it four days from now." <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so, so what he would say. Thanks for the encouragement. Yeah, well, so yeah. what he was saying is, you better keep working on it. You don't just say, right, yeah. "Well, now I've got it." And so you, you just <laughs> kind of learn that every you know every spring I went to. Uh, I went to like a rookie and I had to make the team. But, uh, you know, I, I think just those uh, learning how to you'd go through some, you know, seasons. Like my first full season, I was 9 and 17. I mean, we were a seventh-place team, but I'm really getting knocked all over the lot. But I'm, I'm fortunate that, you know, the Twins were a seventh-place team and I was one of their prize prospects and they could tolerate me kind of learning how to find myself and um, mm. so you know that was kind of a fun experience to go through because all of a sudden i'd have a game and like i remember in, in about midway through that year uh i had my i think it was my first complete game and i gave up back-to-back home runs in like the sixth inning and then my next couple pitches to that hitter after that were strikes and I got in after the inning, and he said, kid, you're arriving now. He said, you didn't let him scare you out of the strike zone. So little yeah. building blocks like that to finally – but even when you even when you reach and, say, get on an all-star team, I think what what professional sports uh, taught me is that there are so many people, particularly for a pitcher, that are involved in your success. Yeah. So, I mean, I always had the attitude that if I lost the game, it was my fault. But if we won the game, I had a lot of guys helping me win that game. And I think mm. I think you have to have, you know, I run into so many players in my career that, well, it was a coach's fault and, and this guy bobbled the ball. He should have had it. And I just had good training from coaches like Eddie Lopez that, uh, that trained me like, hey, it's it's nobody else's fault. It's on you. You have to learn to be responsible for the game. And uh, you know, if you if you lose a piece, don't be content with losing a close game. Uh, yeah. You know, you, you'll have your good stuff. Out of forty starts, you might have your good stuff a half a dozen times. And no matter what you do, you're winning. And then you got those other games where no matter what you do, you're losing. But it's those yeah. close games in between, those twenty starts. Where one pitch here, one pitch there, and you know, I think it kind of uh, trained me to concentrate and, and focus on every pitch, every inning, and uh, yeah. I think that's what the uh, the analytics people today lose sight of. Is, uh Aaron Judge is going through it right now, he's feeling the tension, mm-hmm. and and the people outside the lines don't understand. The heartbeat of a professional athlete, what's going through your mind and your body, you know, day after day uh, to try to to try to find that zone where you can perform your best all the time. And that's that's the challenge every every day, every year. And I, I felt very fortunate. I was able to, you know, to do it for a long time.
1: Well, uh, people, you you' obviously your, hum, your humility and stuff. And that's obviously seems to be lacking a lot in some of the players today. And, the you know, they blame someone else, as you say. So it's kind of kept you going and kept your head on straight. And people admired that, you know, watched the way you handled situations, the good and the bad.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I don't think today um, I think athletes are accustomed to it. It starts in in college where they seem to celebrate a lot. I mean, oh, God, teams yeah. teams can be twenty games out of first place, and somebody wins the game, and they're throwing gatorade all over them like they just won the World <laughs> Series. You know, we just we just never you know if you if you won today's game, okay, nice job. That's what we're supposed to do. Now we have another game tomorrow. You know, so yeah, uh, yeah. I just think everything was. Uh, uh, like you mentioned, I think players and we we had the really the gold standard for that as the leader of our team, and that was Harmon Killebrew. You know, Harmon was as grounded and humble. Uh, uh, you know, even the Hall of Famers always thought of Harmon as as the classiest guy there. I was I was so honored. I spoke at his memorial service at Target Field, and sitting next to me was Henry Aaron. And and I thought, man, I'm sitting next to the hammer. He was one of my favorite position players when I was a kid. Of course, I got to face him a little at the end of his career when he was with the Brewers. But he had such respect for Harmon uh, that he made sure he he came to his uh, memorial service. So I think when you have a guy like that, that's the leader of your team, uh, you know, that you learn how to behave the way he behaves.
1: But you also, I mean, you, along the lines of celebration, you you I, you learned a lot about yourself and your the, the tougher losses, the the seasons that weren't well. Um, do you did? Was is there a season or a time that you really had to, had to kind of pick yourself up more than ever, more than normal? Was there a tough stretch or?
0: Oh, I, I think I think there was. Uh, I mean, you you go for you streaks. You when you're winning a few. I think in 1966 I won nine straight games. But I think. Maybe eight of them were complete games. And uh, and when I went to the ballpark during that time, uh, it was like, well, I know we're going to win tonight. I just wonder what the score will be. I mean, that's uh-huh. the kind of confidence you had. And then you hit a streak where you lose a couple, and then you're in the fifth inning and you got a big lead. You have to pitch five innings to get a win. And in, in my day, you got paid on wins, so... You couldn't just pitch four innings and say, well, I got my 12 million coming in anyway. So uh, so, so now you're in the fifth inning and all of a sudden you walk a guy and then you throw another ball and, and you're out there and the demons are sneaking in and you think, what if I never throw a strike? You know, what oh, am well, I going to do? You know? So that, those kind of stuff, those kind of things kind of sneak into your, you know, the demons come in. So you go through streaks like that. I would say uh, – the all-time bottom which turned out to be eventually an all-time high was uh when I was with the White Sox in 1974 and uh my record was 4 and 6 and I think I had lost five straight starts uh Harry Callis Harry Carey rather is the announcer, and he's, uh, I don't know what they're running this guy out there for. (laughs) When your slow curve and your fastball are the same speed, it's time to call it a career. I mean, we've got these young guys, Carl Moran and Skip Pitlock down in the bullpen, and they keep running him out there every four days. Well, we got off a road trip, and uh, getting my luggage, and over here, and Chuck Tanner, uh, my manager said, uh, come in a little early tomorrow. I want to talk to you. Well, the handwriting was there. I said, okay, I've had a pretty decent career for 15 years, and he could kind of see I'm not I'm not doing it anymore. So I go in early expecting that. And uh, Chuck, as soon as I walked in his office, he slaps me on the shoulder. He said, look me in the eye. He said, you've been winning 15 games a year in this league for 15 years. And I think you can still do it. He said, you're gonna start a week from Monday in Cleveland. You go down to the bullpen every day with Johnny saying, see what you can figure out. So we came up with this, and they even put it on my plaque in Cooperstown. I came up with this rather quick pitch delivery that Johnny helped me create. And from four and six, I ended up the year at 21 and 13. Oh, and, oh my you God! Know, that's unreal. There I am, about you know a day from thinking I'm going home, <laughs> and then that last week, Harry, Harry Carey, see, this is typical Harry. You know, he he said, Jimmy, uh, I'll pick you for my pitcher of the year. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna give you a TV on my on my pregame show today. Come on my pregame show." I said, oh "Harry, God. stick that TV where the sun don't shine." <laughs> 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 and but but you know, next spring. He sees me in spring training. Jimmy, let's go have a drink. I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. was. But uh, yeah, that was that was a year that, uh, you know, and then like I said, I pitched another uh, nine seasons after that. So without Chuck Tanner's confidence in me, my career probably would have been over right there.
1: Well, so like, like you definitely had people on the way that believed you. Oh yeah, that kept you going. That's fantastic. Well, and that's I think fantastic. that's
0: what it that's what it teaches you as as you get older. And I I talk with <laughs> with other, I, you know, at the Hall of Fame, we were we were talking about that because I'm in a room with 54 other guys who were all Hall of Famers, and every one of them has a story about you know if this didn't happen and that didn't happen mm-hmm. or that guy didn't believe in me, so. I think all these young players that are playing today that get kind of full of themselves are going to reach some point where they realize that there were a lot of people that uh, had to do something to help them along the way.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So it was an odd question. If you think back, and if it ever crossed your mind, if you weren't a baseball player, what do you think you might have done
0: well, I, I think that I, and I get asked that, and I think I thought that oftentimes, is I think I really would have enjoyed being a high school basketball coach in a small town, <laughs> the town like I came from, because I loved high school basketball. And I think, you know, being a coach, uh, you could have had a lot of, especially at a high school level, you could have had a, a, a lot of influence on a lot of young men. Sure you know not just in playing basketball, but just in life, so i, I think that would that would have been very attractive to me,
1: yeah, so the sports cast i mean that's there's very few spots there, so how did that happen that kind of organically or yeah. you just gave it a shot and they go, wow, he's good
0: well i uh in in the days i'd say in the seventies, well, first of all, I'll back that up a little bit in the in the sixties decade of the sixties. Yeah. We had to work in the off season, you know. We had to find a job because uh, you just weren't making enough money, you know, during the season. Players today find that hard to understand, but it's the way it was. So, uh, I was doing a post game interview with uh, Ray Scott. He went on; to, he was the voice of the Green Bay Packers at the same time. Right. was our uh, baseball announcer, and he said, "Well." What do you think you'd like to do when you're done playing? Hey, I'm 22 years old. I'm gonna play forever. <laughs> I'm not thinking about when I'm done playing. But I said, you know what? You guys uh, are doing seems like it'd be interesting. Well, wouldn't you know the the Minnesota Twins get a call from the owner of this 500 watt uh, daytime station out in Shakopee, Minnesota. And so in the off season, I'm doing high school basketball, high school football, coaches roundtable on the weekends probably getting about 300 bucks a month for it or something, but it it was a job. So that's when I started. But I I never really thought about that as a career. But in the 70s, if we had a rain delay, like when I was in the Phillies, Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn would would have one of their uh, runners in the booth go down and ask me if I'd come up and just talk baseball with them. Because you didn't have alternative programming to go to in those days. So I'd go up there and uh, just tell stories. And there was a young man named Jody Shapiro who was with uh, Major League Films. And he said, you know, when when you get done playing, you ought to look into this for a career. I said, well, thank you, Jody. I'm, you know, not really, you know, I'm going to pitch till I'm 80 or something like that. You know? <laughs> so, so lo and behold, we have a player strike in 1981. And so he is now running home team sports in Washington, D.C. So he got a hold of me and he said, we're going to do minor league games uh, during the strike. And would you like to go to Rochester this week and work a game with Ralph Kiner? So I said, uh, yeah, I'd like to do that. Well, uh, the shortstop for Rochester at that time was Cal Ripken, Jr., So I did about a half a dozen games during that strike. And then somebody from ESPN, uh, you know, who had just come on the air in 1979, uh, they heard me. And now all of a sudden, would you like to do some college games Uh, when my career was over? And then it just sort of snowballed. The best break I ever got was when, uh, you know, Tony Kubek, who I knew as a, you know because i played against tony and then he was announcing toronto games for a while and i was doing twins games and then he became the yankee announcer so when he decided to retire he recommended to the madison square garden network that they signed me uh mm-hmm. and they did and uh, and so then you know doing yankee games during the when Derek came up in 1995 that was like you couldn't ask for a better job than covering the Yankees during that time. So again, I had all these guys. Uh, you know, I learned a lot from Dick Edberg and, and Dick Stockton, and later I learned from John Madden. So, uh, and, and that was kind of my my mo from the time I was a young pitcher is find people that are good at this and ask them how they do it. And uh, so that that helped me to have to have people like that.
1: Back to that curious, yeah. process, you know, it's, it's less today the, the, the some of the younger players are curious. You're always asking and look what it opened doors for you and led down paths that worked out really amazing. If you, if you would, uh, uh, the, the retired or older Jim Cott, what would you tell the 18, 20 year old Jim Cott if you could,
0: uh, <laughs> Throw more fastballs late in the game. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I love that. Yeah. Because
0: there's more home runs hit off lousy breaking balls.
1: Yeah. Uh, Really? Fastballs. See, I could have made it in the pros. I I know this is silly, but back to the fastball that Whitey Ford taught you. So that, I'm guessing since it was sinking, it was a two-seamer?
0: That's what they would call it, yeah. Right. Because, see, I I was uh, over the top – uh, once I filled out, like after my first year, 1957, uh, and even though I was playing professional baseball, the manager that year at the end of the season said, "Kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance." So, see, I I grew from five ten and a half to like six three, Whoa. and I was like Marmaduke, you know, I was like gangly <laughs> and all over the place. But uh, so I didn't really have the power yet then the next year I went to 6-4 uh, about 220 and, and then you know I was one of those like lead the league in strikeouts hmm. and then in 1959 with Chattanooga uh, I had struck out 19 that was the Southern Association record struck out the first four in my next start and then felt a little like a twinge in my shoulder uh, we didn't have MRIs. Did, I didn't know if we had X-rays. It was just okay. My shoulder hurt. Well, take ten days off. And when I came back, my arm angle had dropped just a little bit below. You know, if you make a perfect L with your arm, like you're hanging onto a subway strap, mm-hmm. that's that. That's the angle you want for an overhand pitcher. My arm angle dropped a little, and my ball just started moving. You know, it wasn't a power fastball, but it started moving and then what compounded it in the instructional league, making a tag on a guy. Uh, he need me in the back of the wrist, not intentionally. And I broke a bone in, in mm-hmm. my uh, wrist up my middle finger. When I came back from that, my finger pressure was different. So the ball was moving and I went from a strikeout pitcher to a ground ball pitcher, which I really liked because I thought, man perfect game for me is 27 pitches, 27 outs, Mm -hmm. you know, strike strikeouts may, may look good, but you can pitch a lot more innings. If you just get hitters out, don't worry about strikeouts. But so, you know, that was really one of the mottos of, uh, of professional pitchers was you really learn how to pitch after you suffer an arm injury. Mm. Uh, today that doesn't happen because if they suffer an arm injury, They probably have a multi-year contract, and they have a surgery or something to repair it. But in the Mm 60s, they didn't. So you had to keep pitching if you wanted to keep eating. So you had to figure out a way to do it, even though there might be a little discomfort there. So uh, that helped that I had that little little injury in 1959 and, and turned me into more of a pitcher than just a thrower.
1: So so you got your book out. Um what what uh what inspired you to write the book? Uh just, just put it all together, all the decades together?
0: Yeah, I did. you know, I did a book called Still Pitching, which was uh I was now pitching in the broadcast booth instead of on the mound. And then Tim McCarver has always said, You got so many stories and you got friends uh-huh. and you ought to do another book and, and then Bob Costas had said, I want you to at least do games with me. Uh, into the 2020s because he said then you'll be an eight decade guy and there really aren't that many of them I don't know exactly yeah. how many probably Vinny then Scully uh, but uh, so that's I wanted to keep going till 2020 and then uh, Doug Lyons who uh, you know his brother is Jeffrey Lyons who was the movie critic mm-hmm. in New York mm-hmm. and his dad of course yeah. was a, a very famous columnist decades ago. And they're all big baseball fans. And Doug had said, if you ever write another book, I'd like to be your co-writer. And so I said, well, let's do this. We thought about what to call it. And uh, I said, well, let's, we decided, let's just cut it up into decades and do a few stories from each decade. And then, uh, you know, I, I, put in my likes and dislikes, which unfortunately in today's game, my dislikes, probably outweigh my likes (laughs) <laughs> uh and so that's how we came up with the book yeah i've had a a few signings and uh it's it's gone well so yeah i, I enjoyed the process i mean you don't do that to make a a ton of money but it, it's kind of nice to put your stories good. down yeah. on paper yeah. uh, i enjoyed it
1: so um so i'm thinking um what is the future are you are you You've completely wrapped up uh, uh, sports ca- uh, commentating? Or well, I, I am.
0: From I, I've said uh, when I did a game, my last game was August 18, but I'd done a game a few weeks before that. And it kind of hit me that, you know, I'm a stranger when I walk in the clubhouse today. Uh, and, and it doesn't hurt my ego, but most of them don't know me. They don't know I played. I can't sit down and talk baseball like I could say, with David Cone, or if I could right. go into the Mets clubhouse and say when Keith was still a player, because he was a teammate of mine, Keith Hernandez, and uh, wow. give you a, little, a good analogy is that uh, when they retired my number this year, uh, the week before the Hall of Fame induction, uh, Julie Vervurska, who put all this together for the Twins, she, she was kind of my administrative assistant, I guess, and she said, "Now." Uh, you're going with me in about 10 minutes and don't ask me why or where it's a secret. Okay. So she leads me into the clubhouse and Rocco Baldelli is in the middle. He's the twins manager and uh, all the living retired number players are here. Joe Mauer, Rod Carew, Ken Herbeck, Tony Oliva, etc. et cetera. Get the, uh, and uh, Tom Kelly and Rocco reads off all my accomplishments with the twins. And then Joe Maurer pulls the cloth and they have all the retired numbers on the wall in the clubhouse. And all the players are sitting around and they give me a nice, polite round of applause. And I said to uh, one of uh, either Rod or Ken Herbeck or somebody, I said later, I said, you know, I looked around the room and I could see these guys looking at each other, saying, you know, I've seen him around here a lot, but I didn't know he played. (laughs) Right. (laughs) but oh, wow. so that you know i yeah. and i'm not really into the analytics stuff so i called my agent sandy montag and uh i said i'd like you to ask uh mlb if they will just uh forgive the la- i was only going to do five games because it was a busy summer and then i also did a few games for the twins and i called uh, dave st peter there and i said i'd really just like to walk away from it i'm not gonna retire but i i'm we need a we need a younger more recently retired player who's into the science and I'm not I said the only statistic yeah. I'm interested in is if we get 27 outs and we're at least one run ahead of the other team when the game is over our winning percentage is 100% <laughs> <laughs> and that's the only stat I'm interested in so
1: what can you leave us any any thoughts for for our listeners Jim, about your your life your journey and what you gained from it not just as a baseball player but as a human being of what 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 some of the, the the lessons you've learned little words of wisdom if you will
0: well i don't know if i if i have any words of uh of wisdom you know we had our 82 cardinal reunion i i was so humbled by how many guys said man you know i learned so much from you because I was 41, two and three when I played for the Cardinals and I'm playing with these guys that are as young as my son. And I said, well, I didn't do anything. I just showed up and played. Yeah. But the way you <laughs> did it, you know, so I, I just okay. think be, uh, you know, in, in sports, in order to succeed, you have to learn to be comfortable when the situation's uncomfortable, but Hmm. I think in, in life, I, I, I think the curiosity factor helped me a lot. So if you're a uh, a young person going into business, uh, ask some of the people that have done it before and are successful or why they failed. And I, I think today there's not enough of that curiosity in sports. That it, it probably uh, exists in business as well. I was fortunate to have a brother-in-law who, uh, wrote a lot of books on leadership. He's in the Business Hall of Fame, Max Dupree, he was the CEO of Herman Miller Furniture Company. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I just learned a lot from him as to how to treat people and uh, to relate to people that are supposedly a higher status than you are and also uh, the ones, you know, Max would walk through the plant, hey, Joe, how's things going here? You've got everything you can do to do your job. So uh, I think treat people the way that you want to be treated and ask ask middle, questions man. of of those who are successful i mean don't think that you know it all because you don't and there's always somebody that knows more and i think right. the key is to you know find that person that knows more and uh, and keep on improving
1: well, hopefully more Jim Cotts are coming up in the big leagues. I love that attitude, you know. Uh, maybe there's a the game is changing and we'll turn around again.
0: From, well, there's a lot to, of uh, there's a lot of good players there and a lot of good people too. A lot of good young men, um, and I just was. I, I know you guys are Mets fans. I know uh, Frankie Lindor. I know if if you asked him, he'd just say, "Hey, give us the ball and just let us play and don't give us all yeah. this scientific information because they are so." much more talented than we were, uh, you know, when we were in our 20s. And I just hate to see them, you know, hothouse. Like, they can only go six innings. They can only throw 100 pitches. Uh, yeah. If they train them properly, like I learned from Warren Spahn, we would be able to see Max Scherzer and Jacob DeGrom pitch nine innings, which I know you guys would be thrilled about. Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Wow. Wow, this has been Antonia no, last it's thoughts. Such right? a thrill. This has been great. Yeah, I'm a huge are. fan. It's been really fun.
0: Well, I've yes. enjoyed it too. I'm happy I was able Thank to do you, it. Jim. Sure. Okay. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for your time. I Really
1: appreciate it. Take care. Take care. Bye. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Grey Matters Podcast. Please rate and review and be sure to tell your friends too. For more information about this podcast, go to at And please subscribe to The Gray Matters wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank my guest, Jim Cott, my co-host Tony Hoyland, and a special thanks to you, the listener. I'm Todd Harrington. Until next time.